What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Hi. Before we begin, I want to recommend a new history podcast that's just arrived on the scene. Allow me to introduce the History of Vikings podcast. From the first origins of the Vikings and their sudden appearance at Lindisfarne, through the age of heroes and gods, and even into the nitty-gritty of Viking battle, raiders, shield maidens, Asgardian gods and longboats, it's all there in great depth and great detail. Check it out at thehistoryofvikings.com on iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. I recommend it. Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 97b, The In-Laws, a look behind the curtain at the inner life of Egypt's adopted royal family. This episode is brought to you by James Goodlive, in gratitude for his generous donation. Thank you James for your support. May Bess protect you while you sleep and bring prosperity to your daily life. To everyone listening, please enjoy the show. Last time, we left off with two great events in the story of the 18th dynasty. In 1390 BCE, a foreign princess arrived at the court to marry the pharaoh of Egypt. Just a few months later, the pharaoh himself inaugurated a new ceremonial lake built in honour of his magnificent queen, the Lady T. It was a grand gesture from a king to his bride, a celebration of their union now almost 10 years old. We haven't really learned that much about tea so far. Since their wedding in Regnal Year 2, the royal couple have enjoyed a relatively successful run. They've had children, led a stable government, and gained the approval of the gods. They were, according to the Anna Karenina principle, a happy family, and happy families are all alike. That's the public image, anyway. Behind the scenes, there were probably plenty of cracks, but we don't see them. What we do see is a complex web of relationships, shaped and dictated by the actors' desires, goals, and by the formalities of their situation. Today, we're going to explore a couple of those complexities. The best way to do this, I think, is to look at Queen T's family. T came from modest origins, she wasn't royalty, and her family were nothing special. The fact that they rose as high as they did was almost a historical accident, a lucky break in what might otherwise have been a rather average lineage. That good fortune was due to her parents, a famous couple named Yuya and Chuyu. It is Yuya and Chuyu that help us flesh out the background of Queen T. Thanks to the records of their lives, we can glimpse the heritage and lifestyle of the royal family, and even some of the more anonymous members of this group. So today, we get to dive into a prestigious but obscure environment, the life of the royal in-laws, who lived and influenced behind the scenes. Our story begins with a tomb. In the year 1905, early February, a wealthy American was making his way into the Valley of the Kings. 
sweating in the heat and wearing a full suit with vest and jacket and a thick moustache, the man was an incongruous sight among the desert cliffs. Were he not so clearly on a mission, you might think he was a tourist lost from his guide. But as he hurried into the valley, this man carried the unmistakable eagerness of impending discovery. His name was Theodore Davis, and he was having a very good month. Davis was a wealthy businessman, who had turned a passion for discovery into a hobby of archaeology. Davis took great pleasure in funding excavations, and sponsoring teams to work in different areas. His main hunting ground was the Valley of the Kings, where under his patronage, archaeologists had discovered tombs of great rulers, like Tutmos IV and Hatshepsut. Now, a new find was coming to light, and Davis, 67 years old, was hurrying into the valley to see what it was. Apparently, there was good news. In the Valley of the Kings, there are many, many tombs. Tombs of pharaohs and queens, but also smaller tombs, built for esteemed courtiers. For every pharaoh, there might be a prized official or family member, who received the honour of a burial near that of their monarch. Over the centuries, dozens of these small tombs were constructed, with the result that the Valley of the Kings is filled with tiny sepulchres belonging to the servants of the pharaohs. Theodore Davis and his team were about to stumble on one of those. Sweating in his suit, Davis came to the foothills near the tombs of Ramesses III and Ramesses XI. This was a well-explored area, but the team dug anyway. With so many monuments around, it was always possible that something had been buried by the detritus of later projects. So Davis's workmen were clearing rubble in this area just in case something came to light. That initiative was sound, and soon it would bear fruit. Davis approached the dig site. The chief workman, called a reis, or captain, showed him what they had found. There, in the rubble, a few inches of well-cut stone were visible, smooth and shaped in the unmistakable form of a step. A staircase buried in the rock was coming to light. As you can imagine, Davis was excited, and the clearance began immediately. Soon enough, a deep staircase was revealed. It went down at a sharp angle, descending a good four metres into the bedrock. Clearing all the rubble out took a while, almost a week, but eventually they reached the bottom. There, a doorway, sealed in plaster, waited. It was a new tomb, previously unknown. It seemed that Davis had hit the jackpot. Sadly, it became clear that robbers had already been at the crypt. A large hole in the top of the doorway spoke of diggers breaking in many centuries ago. Crestfallen, Davis pushed forward nonetheless, and the work continued. On the 13th of February, 1905, the opening of this tomb began. Mr. Davis gathered two friends, Gaston Maspero and the Chief Inspector of Antiquities, Arthur Weigal, and they prepared to approach the door. The entrance to the tomb was dismantled, each basket of rubble carefully sifted, and every stone checked for hieroglyphs. The first priority was to find a name. Who was buried here? Nobody knew. When nothing came to light, Davis ordered the passageway opened, and the exploration could begin. Three men, Davis, Weigal, and Maspero, entered the unknown tomb. The explorers took candles in hand and proceeded into the gloom of a long corridor. The tomb passageway was 1.75 metres wide and 2 metres tall, and it descended quite sharply at a steep angle. The men took care not to fall. Clutching their candles tightly, they crept down the passage, until they came to a small platform. To one side of the main corridor, a small ledge had been cut into the right-hand side of the wall. Sitting on top of it was an oversized wig made out of flax and dyed black. A large bunch of flowers sat next to it, dried by the ages but still intact. Davis noted this find as, 
an armful of dried flowers, which doubtless were offerings to the dead, as is done in our day and generation. End quote. Past this little niche of offerings, the tomb continued. Davis and company made their way down a second flight of steps, down towards a door. This must have been a burial chamber, for the doorway was sealed shut, stones covered in a thick layer of plaster. The men were ecstatic, but again dismayed. A large hole at the top of the doorway revealed the truth. Robbers had been at the burial already. The find might have been lost. On either side of this doorway, placed out of the way of passing feet, two pottery bowls stood silent guard. The bowls were made of red clay, about 30 centimetres wide, and they were splattered with the remains of plaster that had once been used to seal the door. Peering in, holding his candle over the bowl, Davis could see something wonderful. The fingerprints of the original sealer were still visible in the plaster. The bowls left testament of his work, where he had scraped his fingers into the wet clay while doing his job. A pair of wooden sticks rested on the bowls, which the ancient labourer had presumably used to clean his hands. These bowls were a wonderful testament to the care of ages past. The three men had to dismantle part of the doorway in order to access the chamber behind. Starting at the robber's hole, they removed bricks carefully, after copying down the seals and markings which imprinted the plaster. Eventually, the hole was large enough. Mr. Davis and Monsieur Maspero held their candles through and peeked inside the chamber. The glittering shine of gold reflected back at them. In the darkness, many things were invisible, just the glimmers of metal shone brightly in the candle light. It seemed that the tomb was intact. As you can imagine, the men were now beyond excited. It was hard to see what goods exactly were in the chamber. The gloom was too deep, and the candles gave only paltry light to catch those glimpses of gold. There was only one thing for it. Without wasting another moment, the explorers began to clamber up over the bricks and through the robber's hole. Davis, the patron, and Maspero, the expert, went in first. Mr. Weigal, the youngest, brought up the rear. Soon, the three men stood in the newly discovered tomb. The chamber was dark and extremely hot. Sweating from their labours, and probably dressed in heavy suits, the men looked around. Any physical discomfort was overshadowed by the glee which must have swept through them. Davis and company had made a find beyond reckoning, a wealthy burial completely intact. As they held their candles high, they could see shadows of large objects. Furnishings, burial goods, and treasures greeted their dazzled eyes. But despite this overwhelming vision, they still had no idea where they were. Whose tomb was this? Was it a pharaoh? The men began to explore. Their first stop was the coffins, and there they made their find. From Davis's writings, we can revisit this moment. Quote, We held up our candles, but they gave so little light and so dazzled that we could see nothing. In a moment or two, I made out a very large wooden coffin, known as a funeral sled, which was used to contain all the coffins of the dead person, and to convey them to his tomb. This sled was about six feet high and eight feet long, made of wood covered with bitumen, which was still as bright as the day it was put on. Around the upper part of this sled was a stripe of gold foil, about six inches wide, covered with hieroglyphs. On calling Monsieur Maspero's attention to it, he immediately handed me his candle, which, together with my own, I held close to the inscriptions so that he could read them. In an instant, he said, Yuya. End quote. Yuya and Chuyu, two names which are famous among the annals of the Egyptian royal house. A couple of nobodies, Yuya and Chuyu rose to the very heights of society and became part of the royal lineage. Davis, Maspero, and Weigal were standing in the tomb of the father and mother-in-law of King Amunhotep III. Yuya, the father, and Chuyu, the mother, were enigmatic names. They were known from scarabs which recorded their existence, but until 1905, very little was known of their lives. Now, that had changed. 
thanks to the discovery of this tomb, the famous couple were suddenly fleshed out. Quite literally. Yuya and Chuyu came from provincial homes and rose to prominence when their daughter, Ti, married Amunhotep III. This young daughter would be a powerful queen, and Yuya and Chuyu found themselves moving from the periphery to the heart of elite society. As we will see, they benefited handsomely from that, and it would not be exaggerating to say that their lives changed forever. The three excavators were standing in the cramped burial chamber of the couple. It was a simple rectangular hall, about 10 metres long. A tiny space, considering that the sarcophagi took up almost half of that just by themselves. Between the walls and the coffins, a huge assortment of goods had been piled up. Davis and company gazed around, and what greeted them was a vast assemblage of goods. There were square boxes holding the couple's canopic jars, gilded chairs, three of them, elaborately decorated and beautiful, two beds stacked up on top, and all manner of ornaments and amulets completed the vast pile. There were also jewellery boxes, shrines full of shabtis, a basket for wigs, a mat, and even a whole chariot. Basically, it was the complete personal inventory of a fabulously wealthy couple, stacked and packed into a small space deep underground. Many of these objects were plated in silver and gold. Talk about the mother load, right? Everywhere Davis and company looked, they saw wealth. The wealth of royalty, carefully preserved and stored for eternity. On almost every surface, hieroglyphs recorded the titles and lives of these two influential people. But before we start unpacking the tomb, let's explore those lives a little bit. Yuya and Chuyu came from modest provincial beginnings although their actual heritage might be quite different. We're not certain, but there is a good chance that Yuya, the man, was descended from people of Levantine or Syrian stock. For one thing, the shape of his cranium is very unusual, large, extending backwards, in a type not commonly seen in Egyptian mummies. Incidentally, this head shape is a feature that would crop up a lot in the reign of Yuya's grandson. Spoilers. On top of this unusual head, Yuya's name also seemed to be quite strange. Actually, almost unique in the record. The name Yuya, spelled Yuya, is so rare that the scribes and artists who decorated his funerary equipment seem to have had trouble spelling it right. In different contexts, Yuya's name would be spelled with quite different hieroglyphs. Sometimes it appears as Iya'a, quite concise. Other times, though, it's spelled almost phonetically, with pronunciations like Iawu, Iwi, Iawi, Iwia, and Iai. Even just Iu. Yuya's name is a mess, almost as if the scribes were sounding out the word as they wrote it. These inconsistencies and variations had older Egyptologists wondering was Yuya even Egyptian at all? The jury is still out on this particular question but there is a good chance that Yuya was of, or was descended from, Near Eastern heritage. If this is true, and it's really just educated speculation, it would make him one of the few known Easterners, quote-unquote, to visibly attain high rank in the kingdom. In fact, this has led some writers to speculate that Yuya was the historical inspiration for the patriarch Joseph, who was sold into slavery in Egypt, began interpreting dreams, and rose to the highest administrative office, the position of vizier. Well, nothing about Yuya correlates with that story, but the possibility that Yuya is from outside the Nile Valley, at least a couple of generations back, has naturally inspired some theories. We know that Syrians, Canaanites, and people of that sort were living in Egypt at this time, They came as migrants and also as captives in war, 
and there was a substantial population of Near Eastern peoples living in Egypt. But their foreignness was no barrier to assent, and if the theories about Yuya are correct, he would be a wonderful example of the possibilities that a non-typical Egyptian might have in the land of the Nile. Chuyu, meanwhile, has her own interesting background. Her name is Egyptian enough, as is her head shape, but she was probably from the far south, close to Nubia. In fact, it's quite possible that Chuyu had Nubian ancestry, or was Nubian herself. Although she clearly lived an Egyptian-style life, we should imagine her as a dark-skinned woman of southern stock. Gaston Maspero, one of the men who first entered her tomb, noted that she had a strong resemblance to the Berber peoples, and an early 20th century anatomist noted that she was typical of the woman of southern Egypt in that day. So Chuyu was most likely a southerner, with Nubian ancestry or parents. We don't know for certain if Chuyu's ancestry is Nubian, but she's definitely from the south, so it's more than likely that she has some of that Nubian or Sudanese blood in her. If that's the case, we should remember that that blood passed on to her daughter, the great Queen T, wife of Amunhotep. Enough about their ancestry though, let's move on to the couple's actual lives. Yuya, the father-in-law of the king, held a unique position in the social hierarchy. He was known as the Eat Netcher, or God's Father, a title which sometimes correlates with our modern father-in-law. This title is a murky one because it's usually given to priests, but it can also relate to a man whose daughter married a king, or who was the father to a king, but not a king himself. In more turbulent times, like the first and second intermediate periods, kings might rise to power without a hereditary claim. The title God's Father seems to capture that sense of a dad who is not a king. This is probably the title that Yuya was most proud of. Certainly, it's the one he puts closest to his actual name on the coffins and artifacts in his tomb. Yuya is always listed as God's Father Yuya, aka Yuya, father-in-law of the king. As you can imagine, this was a rare and prestigious title to have. Chuyu, meanwhile, was called the Mut Nesut Nihemet Nesut Weret, the royal mother of the great wife of the king. This is her version of mother-in-law, slightly different but no less prestigious. As mother of Queen Ti, Chuyu was the life-giver for one who would bear the next pharaoh. Chuyu would be grandmother to pharaohs, and as a result, she was a mother above all others, an honoured lady great of fertility. Going along with that, Chuyu held the rather lovely title Chesit Nihut Her, aka One Favoured by Hathor. Having given birth to a queen, and thus being grandmother to a future pharaoh, Chuyu had proved herself in the eyes of the mother goddess Hathor herself. She was esteemed, venerated, and her legacy would endure in the bloodline of the royal house. The couple had other titles too. The best one is the title Hesi Necher Nefer, or One Favoured by the Younger God. Both Yuya and Chuyu used this title, and it seems to reflect their close connection with the pharaoh Amunhotep. The phrase Necher Nefer, meaning good or younger god, is another name for the ruling king, and Hesi simply means praised or favoured. So Hesi Necher Nefer might also be translated as one praised by the pharaoh. A nice title that could mean either that Yuya and Chuyu were close with their son-in-law, or that they were given honorifics and left in a comfortable retirement in high status. So that's the couple themselves, possibly of foreign descent, but eventually attaining high status and rank within society. Their origins may be murky, but their lives at court are not, and the couple themselves survive in their mummified remains. These two are well worth a look. In chapter 2, we will explore the crypt more and meet the mummies of this most venerated couple. See you in a moment.
In 1905, three men stood in a chamber. Theodore M. Davis, Gaston Maspero, and Arthur Weigal had entered the tomb of Yuya and Chuyu, the father and mother-in-law of Amun Hotep III. The three men stood amidst glittering gold and silver, ornate furnishings, and vast sarcophagi. They were more than a little overwhelmed. Apart from a few small thefts, nothing major, the burial was undisturbed. The vast assemblage of goods was relatively intact, and here the men would find relics of the couple and of their relatives. Grave goods in the burial of Yuya and Chuyu revealed things about some of their relatives, like their granddaughter, Sit Amun. I'll explore those objects in later episodes. For now, I want to focus on the two mummies. The sarcophagi of the royals had been opened by robbers who came in not long after the original burial. The thieves had thrown the lids of the coffins off in pursuit of amulets and decorations, small portable items that they could steal and sell. Thankfully, the thieves had only managed to get a few things before leaving. When Davis and company looked into the coffins, a welcome sight greeted their eyes. Yuya and Chuyu were lying mummified where they had rested for millennia. Originally, each body had lain within three coffins, nestled within one another like Russian dolls. With the lids removed, the mummies were visible in their wrappings. The bodies of Yuya and Chuyu were finely prepared, covered in shrouds, and they wore golden masks. Like their great-grandson Tutankhamun would do, they went to eternity bearing faces of glittering metal, finely carved and decorated. Looking into the coffins, the excavators could see the untouched beauty of these ancient masks. Words can't do justice to the refined craftsmanship of Yuya and Chuyu's mummy masks, in particular Chuyu's. Have you ever tried describing the Mona Lisa? It's a bit like that. The mask of Chuyu has a wonderful, cheerful smile. The mask of Yuya has wonky eyes and a somewhat unamused expression. For my money, the mask of Chuyu is one of the most beautiful ever found. But if you want to see them, you will find images of the whole tomb collection on the website, egyptianhistorypodcast.com. The bodies of Yuya and Chuyu are perhaps the most perfectly preserved mummies ever discovered. Not only are they in excellent condition, but the mummification itself was damn near perfect. These two factors combine to give us an unparalleled glimpse of their faces and features. Again, pictures will do better than words, but a brief description is worthwhile. Chuyu, the lady, lies in serene repose. She has an oval-shaped face with high cheekbones. Her lips are thin but graceful a wide mouth, perhaps caused by rigor mortis. Her eyes are wrinkled, suggesting great age when she died. Her hair was white, but the embalmers dyed it with a reddish tint during mummification, giving her an orange crop of hair. She had a receding hairline, or a high brow, and her hair sits well back on her head. Chuyu's ears are pierced in two places, and it looks like her nose might have been as well. Her body is aged about 60 when she died, and she was about 1.5 metres tall, almost 5 feet. In other words, a tiny little lady indeed. Yuya, the man, is a handsome chap. Square-jawed, strong chin, high cheekbones, prominent curved nose. His lips are thicker than his wife's, and again he has a deceptively wide mouth caused by stretching in death. His hair also sits well back on his forehead, and again, it was white, but dyed orange. The eyes of Yuya are less wrinkled than his wife's, and his ears were not pierced. His chin still has its stubble, a bristly trace of the beard that he might have shaved in life. Yuya's hands are held up near to his chin, a very unusual pose which might relate to that Near Eastern heritage that some people suggest. Either way, his mummy is as perfect a specimen of the art as you can hope to find. His face is dignified in its slumber, and eternal in its visage. Simply put, these two mummies are stunning. In 1905, during the discovery, Mr. Davis had the opportunity to sit and rest beside the coffin of the Lady Chuyu. 
Overwhelmed by his discovery, he simply stared at the face and observed her in her rest. Quote, When I first saw the mummy of Chuyu, she was lying in her coffin, covered from her chin to her feet with a very fine mummy cloth, arranged with care. Why this was done, no one can positively state, but I think that the robber was impressed by the dignity of this woman whose body he had desecrated. I had occasion to sit by her in the tomb for nearly an hour, and having nothing else to do or see, I studied her face and indulged in speculations. Soon, her dignity and character so impressed me that I almost found it necessary to apologize for my presence. End quote. Mr. Davis sat beside the coffin of Chuyu and gazed upon her serene visage. The lady smiled, undisturbed by the millennia, and her image has become enduring. Chuyu's face, 3,400 years old, is startlingly familiar. You might recognize her on the street any day. The faces of Yuya and Chuyu are the faces of Egypt's most lavish age, a time when the splendor of the royal household was beyond any comparison. Today, they are a hauntingly familiar and personal sight, a woman and a man in all the dignity and fragility of death, gazing upon eternity. Back in 1390 BCE, Yuya and Chuyu were very much alive and enjoying their time in the high society of Egypt. As parents of a queen, parents-in-law of a pharaoh, they had status and wealth. They enjoyed their privileges immensely. Neither Yuya or Chuyu had much political power per se. They were respectable and probably always invited to the banquets. But their actual influence in the court seems to have been ceremonial for the most part. At the very least, it was behind the scenes, soft power rather than administrative. So the status and authority of their position really went to their daughter. While Queen T ruled the land, Yuya and Chuyu enjoyed a comfortable palace life. A nice retirement if you can get it. When the explorers entered the tomb of Yuya and Chuyu, they found it almost exactly as it was left, 3,300 years earlier. Later, one of the men who first entered the tomb, Mr. Arthur Weigal, described it as follows, quote, Imagine entering a townhouse which had been closed for the summer. Imagine the stuffy room, the stiff, silent appearance of the furniture, the feeling that some ghostly occupants have just been disturbed, the desire to throw open the windows to let life into the room once more. That was perhaps the first sensation as we stood, really dumbfounded, and stared at the relics of over 3,000 years ago, all of which were as new as when they graced the palace of Prince Yuya. End quote. The relics of Yuya and Chuyu provide a fascinating collection of an elite royal household. Among the many, many goods, there are some which stand out. There is a large box made of woven papyrus, which was used for holding wigs. There are also four large boxes made of wood, decorated in gold and faience. They bear the names of Yuya, of Queen T, and of Amunhotep III. These probably carried treasures or amulets or the various objects which they used in day-to-day -day life, clothing and all that sort of stuff. An entire bed was also preserved, with its wooden frame and woven base. Also, sandals made of papyrus and leather. There were a number of amulets and decorative objects. Even a whip, apparently part of Yuya's tools as a royal official. Finally, a great collection of alabaster vases, in exquisite craftsmanship, commissioned by the pharaoh and Queen T, in esteem for this royal couple. The burial assemblage seems to be a cross-section of Yuya and Chuyu's daily lives, and the things that they would need in the underworld. Along with all the gold and the glittering silver and metal, there were many things of just practical usage. Beds, chairs, and a chariot. The sort of things that the couple might have used in life. The effect, it seems, was that the tomb almost appeared like an apartment that had been closed up and left behind. Quote, it looked just as a drawing room would look in a London house, but with this terrifying difference, that everything was in the fashion of 34 centuries ago. 
Masbarrow, Davis and I stood there gaping and almost trembling. In all directions stood objects gleaming with gold, undulled by a speck of dust, and one looked from one article to another with the feeling that the entire human conception of time was wrong. These were the things of yesterday, of a year or so ago. End quote. So Yuya and Chuyu went to the afterlife with all kinds of goods, a smorgasbord of their earthly wealth, and a symbol of their prestige. All of that privilege in life came with plenty of side perks. Yuya and Chuyu lived in comfort, and their daughter enjoyed the unrivaled power of a queen of Egypt. But there was someone else in that family, someone now forgotten. You see, Yuya and Chuyu had a son, and he also benefited from the new family ties. We're going to meet that son in chapter 3. We will leave Yuya and Chuyu to one side. Their tomb is magnificent, and there is more to be said. But for the rest of this episode, I want to focus on someone else. It's not mentioned very often, but alongside their famous daughter, Yuya and Chuyu also had a son, and this son left quite a valuable record. His name was Anen. Anen lived a curious life. A man of prestige, he held high office. Connected with the royal family, he enjoyed great wealth. But he was unexpectedly modest, and were it not for a single random reference, we would not know at all that this man was the brother to a queen. On one of the coffins belonging to Chuyu, Anen's mother, a band of gold marked with hieroglyphs records the words, Anen, her son. That's the only reference in all the records of this man which marks the connection between Yuya, Chuyu, Tea and Anen. It seems that this man, brother of a queen, lived his life in a sort of open anonymity. Presumably, everyone knew who Anen was. Hard to keep that kind of thing a secret, right? But for some reason, Anen made no mention of his lineage or his connection with the royal house. Perhaps political modesty kept him silent, or perhaps there was a quiet taboo, a formal silence that went along with his status. Either way, Anen lived his life in a modest fashion. If not for that accident of preservation on Chuyu's coffin, we might easily have lost his record forever. So it's quite lucky that we know anything about him at all. Anen is recorded in two main places. Firstly, his tomb in the hills west of Thebes. It's badly damaged, but now it's being restored, and research is ongoing. What remains of this tomb shows that it was once decorated in top-notch paintings with scenes of wildlife, foreign prisoners, and the king and queen seated in splendour. Anen appears in the tomb, discreetly separated from his fabulous sister, and he appears as a simple nobleman, wearing the finery of a wealthy man, but with no distinguishing characteristics. If you saw him in a crowd, you might never notice him. In fact, in contemporary appearances, Anen often appears in the crowd, just one man among many, with nothing but his name to identify him. When Anen appears, it's quite exciting, like a cameo by a favourite actor. Glancing through the procession, and suddenly, hey, it's that guy! Anen pops up in the crowd, and carries on his way. Secondly, the most valuable relic of Anen is a statue. It's now housed in Turin, Italy, and it depicts him as a priest. The statue is about 1.4 metres tall, slightly under life-sized, but its form and decoration are most impressive. Anen strides forward, his hands are at his side, his hair is long, and his face sombre, serious. Around his waist, an elaborate kilt marks him out as a prestigious man. Over his torso, he wears a remarkable item, the garb of a priest, a leopard skin. Draped over his left shoulder, the skin of a leopard acts like a cloak. Its head hangs over his stomach, 
and the skin itself is decorated in stars. Why stars? Well, that has to do with Anen's job. Anen was, first and foremost, a member of the priesthood. His most prestigious titles connect him with the temples, and his statue reinforces that role. Not only is he in the costume of a priest, but the back of this statue is covered with the titles and functions which he filled in life. Two of those titles really stand out. Anen's greatest title was Chief of Sightings in the Royal House. This might best be translated as Chief Astronomer. It was Anen's job to observe the stars, the same stars which decorate his cloak. From the roofs of temples, Anen would watch the rising and movement of the celestial bodies. He would consult the textbooks and record these movements, affirming that the heavens were functioning as they should. From there, he could make decisions on when festivals would be held, in particular, the festivals associated with the lunar calendar, which tends to drift through the year on account of a shorter cycle. So Anen was heavily involved in the rhythm of celebrations and festivals which went on throughout the year. As you can imagine, this was a very important function. It's hardly surprising that the pharaoh's brother-in-law was the one who got it. Anen's job as astronomer probably had something to do with his choice of tomb. The monument of Anen is located high up in the hills west of Thebes, above the dust and haze of the busy plains. There, in clear night skies, Anen or his soul could watch the stars and observe the passage of time. It's a poetic spot on which the night sky would shine brightly. A good place to rest, all things considered. Outside of astronomy, Anen also worked in the priesthood of Amun. He held the prestigious rank of Chem Netcher Senu Imen, aka the second prophet or priest of Amun. This meant that he participated in the sacred rites and perhaps oversaw some building projects in the major temples. Among the many and varied functions of a prophet of Amun, Anen would have had a particular part to play in the sacred offerings. From a later text, we hear of the second prophet making the following prayers. Quote, the second prophet holding the incense burner says, Hail to you, censor of the gods, who is of Thoth's followers. Both of my arms are upon you like those of Horus. Both my hands are upon you like those of Thoth. My fingers are upon you like those of Anubis, the chief of the divine pavilion. Me? I am the living slave of Ra. Me? I am the priest, the pure, for I have purified myself. My purifications are the purifications of the gods. End quote. The second prophet made offerings of incense before the gods, and approached the statue with solemnity and respect. Around him, the other prophets would echo what he said, before making their own offerings to the divine image. Although that text is of a later date, Anen might have performed rites such as these. So the role of second prophet put Anen at the core of the priesthood, representing both his god and his king. Finally, Anen also worked outside the clergy. He held titles like mayor and hereditary nobleman, which he probably inherited from his father. He also had the important title seal-bearer of the king. Now most of these may be honorifics, with no real function or power. Like his parents, Anen was given ceremonial roles at the court, without necessarily having an administrative part to play. Perhaps the most valued but meaningless title was One great of love in the king's house, who may approach his lord, the sole companion, Anen. It seems that Anen, although an anonymous brother-in-law, was still given the prestige accorded to a member of the extended royal family. He worked in high-status jobs and enjoyed privileged access to the palace and the pharaoh. Anen seems to have mostly worked in Thebes, probably at the mortuary temple of Amun-hotep. There, he served Re in his various incarnations, Amun-Re, Re-Atum, Re-Horakdi, by day, Anen would make offerings to the god's image. By night, he would observe the stars and plot the course of the heavens. 
These rituals made Anen a key player in the religious life of the southern city. Anen worked at the very heart of the solar religion. It's entirely possible that Anen tutored his nephews, the princes of the realm, in this religion of Ra. Anen would have great success in his religious life. He spent a good 15 to 20 years working in the temples of the land. At the pharaoh's mortuary temple, rising on the west bank of Thebes, Anen participated in its rites and offerings. Presumably, he did a lot of celestial observations from its roof. He would also serve in the Grand Sed Festival, the first jubilee of the king, which arrived in regnal year 30. That was probably the largest ceremony of his life, an over-the-top extravaganza dedicated to his brother-in-law. Anen would have worked tirelessly in the proceedings of this celebration. We will come to the Sed Festival soon, but that is going to be a bit of a whirlwind, and we wouldn't want to miss Anen in all of that chaos. Anen, the cameo man, would be in the background of the Sed Festival, and a valuable participant in its many rituals. So we will see him again soon. Jumping ahead a bit, Anen probably lived just a few years past that Sed Festival. Around 1370 BCE, maybe a bit later, he passed away and entered the annals. With characteristic quietness, Anen went to his tomb as a private individual. Were it not for the wealth of the man, we might have no idea of his status. It was thanks to his mother, Chuyu, that the relationship was recorded at all. One notable relic survives from the tomb and burial of Anen. It is a Shabti figurine, one of the answerers who would labour on his behalf in the field of reeds. The Shabti takes the form of a mummy with Anen's face and hair, and he is wrapped in a shroud. On his chest, the ba or soul rests as a bird. It is a small but beautiful little piece, which now sits unobtrusively in The Hague, Netherlands. So the life of Anen, brother of T, son of Yuya and Chuyu, was a curious case of wealth and prestige and discretion. We will never know if he was particularly modest in person, but the surviving traces suggest, at the very least, he was discreet. He was, dare I say, anonymous. That's all we have time for today. Not to worry, the story of Anen, Yuya, and Chuyu will continue in the next episode when we catch up with the younger generation of royalty. You see, the in-laws were naturally connected and involved with the upbringing of the royal children. In the cities of Memphis and Thebes, Anen, Yuya, and Chuyu would engage with the crown prince Tutmos and his sister Sit Amun. We will meet them on the next episode. See you soon. Oh, one more thing. To better accommodate the advertisements which my host website requires, I am trialling something new. I'm going to have the ad break now, and then include a short epilogue to the episode. I'm hoping to do this more in future, as a way of avoiding any interruptions to the main narrative. If you'd be so kind, let me know how this works for you. Is it an improvement? Fire me an email, and I'd be very grateful. Cheers! The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. In 1905, while investigating the tomb of Yuya and Chuyu, Theodore Davis, Gaston Maspero, and Arthur Weigal were making their way through darkness. They had only candles to light their search, and in one amusing instance... This nearly caused a catastrophe. When they first entered the burial chamber, Davis and company found the large sarcophagi of the ancients resting where they had been placed 3,300 years before. The men did not know at first to whom these coffins belonged. 
and they tried to use their candles to get a better look. Maspero hunched over the hieroglyphs, and Davis held the flickering lights close. When he did, there was a near miss. Quote, I held the candles before my eyes, close to the inscriptions, so that Monsieur Maspero could read them. In an instant, he said, Yuya. Naturally excited by the announcement, and blinded by the glare of the candles, I involuntarily advanced the lights very near the coffin, whereupon Monsieur Maspero cried out, Be careful! and pulled my hands back. In a moment I realised that, had my candles touched the bitumen resin which covered the coffins, which I came dangerously near to doing, the coffin would have been in a blaze. As the entire contents of the tomb were inflammable, and there was a corridor directly opposite the coffin, leading to the open air and making a draught, we should undoubtedly have lost our lives. The only escape was by corridor, which would have necessitated climbing over the stones which barred the doorway. This would have retarded our exit for at least ten minutes. End quote. The men were in a small enclosed space, amid objects made of wood. Those objects were dry and brittle, and many of them, like the sarcophagi, were coated in protective resin. Behind the men, a small hole in the doorway led to the outside world, and provided a source of air. In other words, the men were standing in an oven, and Davis had almost thrown the switch. Had the candle flames touched the coffins, particularly the resin, a fire would have started. This fire would have engulfed the artifacts and the mummies like it was a room full of kindling. Flames and smoke would have filled the chamber in minutes, and a suffocating pole would have laid over the space. What's worse, the only way out was that small hole in the doorway. A hole that would have taken several minutes for them all to navigate. Had the candle sparked a fire, the men would certainly have died. Davis got lucky, and his candle did not touch the resin. He avoided a blaze, just barely, and the contents of the tomb were preserved. But it was a close call, and if not for Maspero's quick reaction, the afterlife of Yuya and Chuyu might have been very different indeed. What's more, the lives of three men might have ended in the most horrifying circumstances. Thank heavens for Maspero. Thanks for listening to the History of Egypt podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you have any questions, drop me a line at egyptpodcast at gmail.com. That's egyptpodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you.